Good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's um, British Government at LSE public lecture. Um, my name is Paul Kelly, and I'm Pro Director of the School, um, and I will be chairing tonight's event. Um, I'm particularly happy to be doing this because um, before I came to the school, 1995, I taught for five years in Swansea, and I lived in Clitheroe in the Swansea Valley, so I feel some attachment to Wales. I'm not going to say uh, much more than that, but I spent five wonderful years in South Wales. Our speaker tonight is the Right Honourable Carwyn Jones, AM, First Minister of Wales. He was educated at Brintake Comprehensive School in Bridgend, and then at the University of Wales Aberystwyth and the Inns of Court, London. A barrister who um, worked in Swansea, becoming a county councillor, borough councillor, and eventually rising up through the South Wales Labour Party, becoming Deputy Secretary in March 2000, and following a series of uh, other ministerial offices in the, in, in, in the Welsh Assembly, succeeding Rodri Morgan in 2009. Carwyn Jones was appointed a Privy Councillor on the 9th of June 2010 and was re-elected to the National Assembly of Wales in May 2011 and reappointed as First Minister of Her Majesty the Queen's, um, by Her Majesty the Queen. It's appropriate for us to have the First Minister of Wales here to talk about Wales. Wales is perhaps the oldest part of the Union in rather ambiguous way, but it is the oldest part of the Union. We've been looking at, um, through a series of lectures, the, the problems facing, or the challenges facing, the questions facing the future of the Union, starting with Alex Salmond, with Martin McGuinness, from the perspective of Northern Ireland, and somebody who's sceptical about the Union. We've now moved on to consider the position of Wales. And our speaker tonight will address the future of the Union from the perspective of Wales. The title of tonight's talk is The Future of Union Wales, and we couldn't have a better person to present that than the First Minister. So, without further ado, it is my great pleasure to ask you to welcome Carwyn Jones, First Minister of Wales. Thank you very much. But the Welsh language is uh, the descendant of the language that was once spoken across the whole of this island. Uh, English uh, supplanted it after the uh, Romans left when the Anglo-Saxons arrived. And if you look at a flag, the Red Dragon, which when you're in school is the hardest flag in the world to draw, uh, you, will, you may well wonder why it is that a red dragon is our symbol. It's because uh, Merlin, the magician, had said, had a vision. 
where he saw a red dragon and a white dragon fighting in the sky, and the red dragon won. Uh, he interpreted this as meaning that one day the Welsh would retake the entire island of Britain. He'd be glad to know that's not part of our policy yet in terms of the future of the Union. Throughout its existence, the LSE has, to use that dreaded word, engaged with the important issues of the day. And the decision to organise this lecture series on this topic is firmly within this admirable tradition. Now, I understand, well, I know because it was well-trailed, that Alex Salmond and Martin McGuinness have already delivered lectures. Both are very able politicians, but both believe that the Union shouldn't have a future, at least not in Scotland and Northern Ireland. Now, most people in Wales would take a different view. We share a small group of islands with England, Northern Ireland and Scotland. Our close integration, social, cultural and economic, is good for Wales, I believe, but also good for the UK. 30% of the population of Wales was born outside Wales. Most of those people have come to live in Wales from other parts of the UK. 100,000 people cross the border every day to work. More than 600,000 people of Welsh origin now live in England. That figure tends to grow or reduce according to how well the Welsh rugby team are doing. But I think it's right to say that those people have no desire to become foreigners as they live in England. Being part of the UK also benefits our economy. It means easy access to a large market, an integrated transport system, a unified tax and social security system, more or less, which enables transfers from richer to poorer regions, recognised education standards, an integrated labour market, a common currency and a common legal framework. The UK works for all of its constituent nations and all have contributed to its success. David Lloyd George laid the foundations for the welfare state and Anirin Bevan's vision gave us the NHS. So I want the Union to flourish and for Wales to play a dynamic role, but for this to happen, the structures of the UK must adapt to the changing identities and aspirations of its citizens. People in Wales are comfortable with their overlapping Welsh, British and European identities. They're complementary rather than conflicting aspects of our citizenship. If you visit Cardiff in February, you will find a city that is red and passionately supporting the Welsh rugby team. But if you were there for the Olympic football earlier this summer, you'd have found a city comfortably supporting Team GB. And if you'd visited in 2010, you'd have seen remarkable support in Newport for the European Ryder Cup golf team. So I'm going to be making an unashamedly pro-union argument. And I'll link prospective changes in Wales, the UK and Europe together. I'll stress that over the next few years, in particular 2014, we may see what may prove to be historic turning points. And our political system has to show that it's up to the task of addressing these fundamental changes effectively and coherently. Let me talk first about Wales then. Devolution is now the settled will of the people of Wales. But unlike in Scotland, where devolution perhaps sprang into life fully formed, devolution in Wales has been a process of growth. 
since 1999. It was only with the overwhelming success of the Yes campaign in the referendum last year that we finally established the National Assembly for Wales as a proper legislature with primary legislative powers. In other words, the power to pass bills into life as acts. So the Assembly can now make laws for Wales in matters such as health, education, transport, the environment, local government, areas which touch people's lives on a daily basis. There are other areas as well. It's not an exhaustive list. But we have more constitutional change in prospect. The UK government, in its coalition agreement, committed to a commission to review the constitutional settlement for Wales. That commission, under the chairmanship of Paul Silk, has been working diligently and will soon publish its first report. The commission's remit covers two broad areas. First, it's considered fiscal devolution, whether to confer on the Assembly responsibilities to determine rates for specific taxes. I should at this point point out that at some points I'll talk about the National Assembly for Wales, which is the legislature and the Welsh Government, an entirely different body, which is the Government, because we have a de jure split between Government and legislature, and we've had that since uh, uh, 2007. The Commission will report to the UK Government on that issue very soon, but the two governments, ourselves and the UK, have already agreed that any recommendations on the transfer of taxation powers will go forward only with the consent of the National Assembly itself. That's a proper recognition of the status of the Assembly within the UK's constitutional arrangements, and it means that fiscal devolution must proceed on the basis of consensus between the UK and Welsh Governments. The second part of the Silk Commission's remit will be to review the respective legislative responsibilities between the Assembly on the one hand and Parliament on the other. Now, it would take another full lecture to explain how we got to the current balance and the complications that arise from it, and I won't pursue that this evening. At the moment, for example, we await a Supreme Court judgment on one particular aspect, the uh, Local Government Bylaws Bill, and we wait to see how far the settlement goes in that particular aspect of the devolution settlement according to the Supreme Court. But it's worth noting that the case was heard in the Supreme Court without a Welsh judge on the bench. That would never happen for Scotland and Northern Ireland. Never. And it could never happen again as far as Wales is concerned. It was surprising that the Lord Chief Justice, who is Lord Chief Justice for England and Wales, wasn't invited to sit on the case. That clearly doesn't look right as far as Wales is concerned. Wales is the only part of the UK that isn't formally represented in the membership of the Supreme Court, and that situation can't continue. Although the National Assembly now has substantial legislative powers, the statutory provisions providing for this differ significantly from the Scottish Parliament and the Northern Ireland Assembly. What does that mean? Well, the Scottish Parliament's powers are defined in law by what it can't do. Certain matters are reserved to Westminster, but the Parliament in Scotland can legislate on anything else. In other words, that's all yours, Scotland, except these bits that we're going to reserve to ourselves. Nice and clear. 
But the National Assembly for Wales powers, on the other hand, are determined by what we are permitted to do. In other words, you've got nothing except what we give you. Now, that may seem a small difference, but it makes a difference in terms of being able to establish the powers that the Assembly actually has. And it restricts unnecessarily the legislative powers that we have in Wales. In theory, the two approaches ought to be able to produce bodies with equivalent competence. But in practice, that's proven not to be the case. And the method of conferring legislative competence on the Assembly produces complications. I expect the Silk Commission will receive a lot of evidence about this with recommendations to change. And our evidence as a government will argue for Welsh devolution to be reformed on the basis of the reserved powers model. In other words, this is all yours, apart from what we're specifically reserving back to Westminster. Now, the timetable for the second part of Silk's work is significant. The Commission has to report by the end of March 2014. That's a crucial year, as you'll know, for the constitutional future of the UK and Europe. So, recognising this, as a government, we'll be asking Silk to address its remit with a full awareness of what's happening more widely across the rest of the UK. Not just to look at current issues, but to look at a longer-term vision for the governance of Wales within the UK. Let me come back to financial reform. Money forms a large part of politics. That much is true. All countries grapple with resource allocation across regions and between tiers of government. There's no single right way of doing things, no template of best practice. Each country's system reflects its own particular and peculiar socioeconomic circumstances and its political culture. So it's difficult to look across the world and draw too many lessons as to how things should be done here in the UK. But that said, we should be able to sketch out what the main features of a sensible system of funding of regional governments should look like. For me, and I argue for anybody wishing to maintain the the integrity of the UK, the core of any system should be an attempt to align resources and needs. If UK citizenship means anything, it surely means that people shouldn't have to experience widely divergent levels of funding for public services simply as the result of the tax base in any particular part of a state. Devolution allows spending on services to be aligned with local priorities and preferences. That's the way it should be. But a system that left one part of the UK permanently and substantially under or over-resourced in relation to its needs would be failing its citizens in a fairly fundamental way. For instance, the presence of offshore oil, the absence of offshore oil, to take one obvious and relevant example, shouldn't be allowed to distort funding levels between UK regions to the extent that relative needs and relative funding end up severely out of kilter. Looking around the world, we see that regional and sub-state governments invariably possess powers to adjust the profile of spending over time and to increase or decrease spending envelope at the margin. That's achieved through the use of tax and borrowing powers. Borrowing powers are especially useful in making large, lumpy capital projects affordable, as well as providing some level of control over the overall level of spending. Tax powers can also be useful policy levers, and arguably they can serve to strengthen democratic engagement. In other words, if people don't like the way what you're doing with their money, they kick you out. 
Finally, any stable system needs a clear and well-understood framework of rules and responsibilities that respects the legitimate interests of all tiers of government. So my view is that a sensible system of devolved finance should show that resources are broadly aligned with needs. Meaningful, but not unlimited borrowing powers, as far as Wales is concerned, and some taxation powers as well, all operated within a clear framework that aims to avoid friction between different levels of government. To say that the current UK system falls short of that is something of an understatement. At present, almost all taxes paid in Wales are pooled at the UK level, along with the taxes paid by citizens in England, Scotland and Northern Ireland. From that pool, we receive a block grant, which makes up almost all of our spending in Wales. But the mechanism for setting the block grant is quite poor. The starting point for the size of the block grant this year which is the baseline on which all subsequent changes are made, is whatever the block grant was last year. The baseline for setting the block grant last year is whatever the grant was the year before that, and so on. Now, you might expect, at some point in this backward loop, which now stretches back over 30 years, well before devolution, you would try to see some justification for the overall size of the settlement, but there isn't one. There isn't one. No real attempt is made to align spending with needs. No attempt to do anything other than set a budget with the minimum political thrust from one year to the next. As a politician, I understand that. But it doesn't mean that the fundamental issues are being addressed. Having established an almost entirely arbitrary baseline, annual changes to the size of the block grant are made through a mechanism known as the Barnett Formula. Now, this is a subject that causes huge excitement amongst a small band of enthusiasts, but for most people it causes the eyes to glaze over pretty rapidly. Now tonight it suffices to say that the formula lacks any rationale anymore. It's almost entirely unloved outside of HM Treasury and perhaps Scotland, where perhaps the ability to set a budget with a minimum fuss from one year to the next is a prized objective. I occasionally hear the claim that Wales does well, unfairly well, out of the current system, but in fact... The Barnett formula does Wales absolutely no favours in terms of our budget settlement. The point's been proven in multiple commissions, committees and academic studies in recent years. Incidentally, many of those same studies have drawn the opposite conclusion about Scotland's funding position. It's pretty clearly over-resourced in relation to its needs. And I'd say that if I was standing in Edinburgh. Well, I might have a police escort when I left. But this blunt fact is rarely acknowledged by advocates of the block grant status quo. Um, it would be naive to think that Scottish Chancellors, Prime Ministers and Chief Secretaries of the Treasury of recent years were unaware of this, and I suspect they're unlikely to suggest that Scotland's funding should be cut. According to Treasury data, public spending per head in Wales has historically been lower, not just than in the other devolved administrations of Scotland and Northern Ireland, but actually lower than London. London's public spend per head is higher than Wales. Now, London has its own needs and challenges. I haven't come to the LSE to argue that London's funding should be reduced. But it's something to bear in mind next time we see complaints in the London media implying that Wales is some kind of subsidy junkie living off over-generous funding from the rest of the UK because London's in an even more marked position when it comes to that. So the block grant element of our settlement is not a pretty picture. As for the other normal financial powers of a sub-state government, borrowing and tax-varying powers, 
They're easily summarised. We don't have any. Actually, that's not quite correct. We do have fairly extensive borrowing powers in law, but the Treasury operates the rules in a way that makes them meaningless in practice. In other words, every pound we borrow, they take a pound back. So it, it makes no sense in terms of the way it operates at the moment. In fairness, I know the Treasury is sympathetic to that situation changing, so I need to say that. Now, borrowing powers are hardly a radical or novel budgetary device. Local authorities have always been able to borrow without the world coming to an end. And all the other devolved administrations already possess or are being given borrowing powers to invest in capital projects. As a government, we are in the unique position of not having this power. We trust it's going to change in the near future, but that's where we are at the moment. It means that if things were to stay as they are, that major infrastructure projects with a strong economic rationale couldn't be delivered because they're in Wales. In other words, if we wanted to, for example, improve the M4 substantially uh, at a rate that would mean we couldn't pay for it through our normal capital budget, we'd have to borrow to pay for it, then that improvement could, couldn't take place simply because it was in Wales. Could it England, Scotland or Northern Ireland because it's in Wales, it couldn't. Now, that clearly can't be right. If you've ever driven into Wales uh, on the M4, you'll know it can be badly congested. It needs significant improvement. And the economic studies show that the benefits to both Wales and the southwest of England from such a, an improvement scheme would be substantial. But any major scheme would consume for several years around a quarter of the Welsh Government's total capital budget, which has to cover not just transport, but health, education, the environment, so on, schools, hospitals. It's too much out of our budget. Without the borrowing powers that are available elsewhere in the UK, it would be unaffordable for us to do anything major on any of our main roads. And that clearly can't be right in the future. It would be ridiculous to discriminate against capital projects simply because they're located in one particular part of the UK, which for no good reason lacks access to the financial levers available elsewhere. But, and I believe that, that argument does have traction in the Treasury. With reasonable borrowing powers that would allow us to spread the costs of projects beyond their actual period of construction, those problems could be addressed. And that means we need to see financial legislation delivering those powers to Wales well within the lifetime of this current Parliament. Borrowing has to be repaid. A lot of your students, you'll know that better than anybody. It's not free money. In practice, the annual block grant of some £15 billion that we currently receive would give us ample cover for a prudent programme of capital investment, particularly as Wales has much smaller PFI obligations in other parts of the UK. But the UK government believes we need a revenue stream separate from the block grant before we can borrow. We understand that point. So, tax devolution offers one potential way forward. Before I come to that, there is an additional substantial potential revenue stream which flows from the, the row of toll booths on the Welsh side of the seven crossings. At present, the crossings are privately operated and motorists are charged some £90 million, not each, but together, in toll <laughs> revenue to enter Wales every year. And this revenue grows as uh, the flow of traffic increases. But in 2018... The current concessions will come to an end and the UK Government's Department for Transport will determine what happens next. Now, it would not be something that we could support if we saw a situation where the Department for Transport 
control the tolls, charge what he wanted to, and then use that money entirely for English roads, which at the moment is what would happen. So in other words, people pay to enter Wales when they're over a barrel with the Department of Transport, and then that money's never spent in Wales either. Clearly that would be unacceptable. So we want to make sure that that doesn't happen in the future. Those of you who are familiar with Welsh history will be aware of the Rebecca riots of the 19th century when toll gates were attacked and burned by gangs of men dressed as women. I'm not going to advocate that approach tonight. But surely the fair-minded motorists would view the situation I've just described as an injustice. So we need a different way forward. I believe there's a very strong case for replacing the tolls from 2018 with a new road user charge and the revenues from this charge would help to improve the M4 in South Wales with benefits accruing to the economy not just of Wales but the southwest of England as well. It would provide also a source of income against which we could borrow as a government and so spread the upfront costs of the investment over a much longer period. It offers a route as well to devolving borrowing powers swiftly and delivering economic benefits to the UK. And Rebecca, I'm sure, would approve were he, she, to be still alive. So Wales has a flawed block grant and no meaningful borrowing or tax powers yet. But it's no use just complaining. So I want to say something about what I believe the future of Welsh finance, Welsh devolution finance, should look like. Over the past year, the two governments in Wales and the UK have been discussing reform of the mechanism for setting the Welsh Block Grant, as well as allowing us access to our existing borrowing powers. Last month, we published a joint statement on the progress that's been made in those discussions. Quite a, a task to try to read that and also pour a glass of water at the same time, especially when you've left your glasses at home, believe me. The statement that's been agreed is not perfect, but it does contain several specific new commitments, including a new mechanism for addressing problems with a block grant, detailed talks on early access to borrowing powers and a guaranteed role for the National Assembly in agreeing to a major change. Perhaps the most important aspect of the statement is the signal it sends about the future path of reform. The fact that both governments were able to agree a joint statement is in itself unusual. That said, joint statements aren't an end in themselves and over the coming months discussion needs to be turned into concrete actions. The Silk Commission's work on the case for devolution of new fiscal powers for Wales has proceeded in parallel with these intergovernmental talks and last month's joint statement opens the way for tax devolution to become a realistic prospect. Now, clearly some taxes are better candidates for devolution than others. For the devolution of any specific tax to be meaningful, there must be a realistic prospect of those tax-varying powers actually being exercised, which does mean different rates and thresholds operating on either side of the border. For many taxes, administrative barriers, European law, the Azores judgment particularly, or the likelihood of economic distortions make that an impractical proposition. VAT, for example, is not, I believe, suitable for devolution. Similarly, any difference between alcohol or tobacco duties on either side of the border would create a flourishing business for smugglers. And we're not looking at setting up our own customs police in order to deal with that. Anybody who's familiar with the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic will know that there's a flourishing trade in smuggling that takes place of almost anything across that border. And that wouldn't do much good, either for our finances or for the finances of the UK government. But in other cases... Tax devolution is not just feasible, but desirable. 
Let's start with tax-varying powers that could serve as policy levers in areas of of existing devolved responsibility. Housing, for example. Stamp duty land tax would be perfectly capable of operating on an all-Wales level. Housing is, of course, immobile, making it relatively immune to economic distortions that might otherwise arise from differences in cross-border rates. There are also certain environmental taxes, such as landfill tax and aggregates levy, which are clearly tied to a specific locality and would fit well with existing devolution. They're already within the area of responsibility that we have in policy terms. Air passenger duty is another tax that should, in my view, be devolved. And while London struggles uh, with the question of where to build additional airport capacity, we in Wales face a very different problem. Our national airport in Cardiff has not enjoyed the growth in passenger numbers and destinations that we need to help deliver and drive economic growth. And devolution of air passenger duty would give us a useful tool to incentivise the growth of Cardiff Airport and other smaller facilities such as Anglesey Airport in the north of Wales. APD has already been devolved for long-haul flights to Northern Ireland and, as a minimum, I believe Wales should have parity. Speaking of air transport, I know the debate on the Boris Island is a matter of great interest in London, but the proposal has worrying implications for the rest of the UK. Heathrow, for all its drawbacks, functions effectively as the major hub airport, not just for London, but for the whole of the west of Britain, including most of Wales, most of South Wales particularly. It's an undeniable geographical fact that a new airport far to the east of London will not fulfil that role. It it wouldn't solve the UK's need for an expanded hub airport, uh, and I've certainly made that point to the UK government. The the Thames estuary is a long, long way from Cornwall or South Wales, and people just wouldn't travel there to use it, whereas Heathrow is a lot more accessible uh, than anything in the the Thames, uh, certainly floating on the Thames, uh, would be. Turning to options for even wider reforms, devolution of income tax is clearly feasible in principle. As we know, it's in the process, so it has been partly devolved to Scotland, and more is coming. But for both constitutional and practical reasons, the situation in Wales is a little bit more complicated. Constitutionally, it's important to remember that the 1997 referendum on devolution in Scotland secured public consent for income tax-varying powers. True, they were the powers that were included in the 1998 Scotland Act, but nevertheless, the principle was accepted by the Scottish people. No such questions have been put to the people of Wales. I think Welsh voters would expect to say before they found themselves potentially paying a rate of income tax that's different to other parts of the UK. In other words, there should be a referendum before this power could be transferred. In addition, the practical barriers to income tax devolution shouldn't be minimised. The border between England and Wales is much more porous than the border between England and Scotland. Around 100,000 people, as I mentioned, cross into or out of Wales every day for work reasons. That's almost three times the figure for Scotland. The administrative challenge of operating two income tax regimes for governments, for businesses and citizens would be significant. Not impossible, but significant. It's for that reason that we as a government haven't sought the power to vary income tax. That said, I know that the Silk Commission is looking at income tax as part of its work, and no doubt they'll have given some thought to the practicalities of how devolution of the tax could be made to work if, well, if they're able to do that, if they're able to provide reassurance on that score, and if we can be sure that the people of Wales have the opportunity to give their consent, well, that might be included in a package of reforms, but subject to those 
conditions. But given the challenges, full devolution of powers to vary income tax rates is likely to be some way off. It might be scoped to move more swiftly to a model of income tax assignment. That is where part of the Welsh Government's resources are drawn from Welsh income tax receipts. But without devolution of the powers to vary income tax rates, full devolution of rate-varying powers could follow at a later stage with popular consent. Assignment could involve significant challenges for the Welsh Government's budget, but I wouldn't want to rule it out as an option. It would reduce our reliance on a block grant, bring us more into line with international practice and give the Welsh Government a direct financial stake in the economic prosperity of Wales. In addition, it could provide us with a substantial income stream that will be separate from the block grant and therefore it could provide a route to meaningful borrowing powers. So if the risks are manageable, that could be an attractive proposition. Before I came into politics, I was a barrister working in the Crown Courts. And quite often you'd address juries for a, a, quite, a, quite a length of time, sometimes hours. So I was to take the opportunity just to, just to look up to make sure people still actually uh, have their heads in the air. The old trick, of course, is to say to people, and finally, and then keep on saying that for the next half an hour. So I'll spare you that old trick for now. But in terms of assignment of income tax, again, legislation would be needed to implement a new system. If we can reach agreement on a way forward, well, I'd be looking to the UK government to legislate within the lifetime, again, of the current Parliament. There's clearly an opportunity to move away from an imperfect current system to a new model better suited to the realities of a looser but still united kingdom. And so, it's now to the question of the future of the United Kingdom that I now turn. A change is as good as a rest, they say. While considerable progress has been made over the last 15 years in terms of modernising the British Constitution, the challenges immediately ahead are at least as great as those that have been addressed so far. The new challenges are about the territorial constitution. How, how are the different territories of the UK to be governed, and how are their governments and legislatures to relate to each other within the UK? I've never used that on the doorstep, by the way. Not the door, I'm canvassing. Now, I emphasise within the UK, whilst the vast majority of the people of Wales have no interest in independence, and that's what the opinion polls show, it's important to look at how devolution will develop in the future. Support for independence was never significant even before 1997, and since devolution it seems to have declined further. So we know that Wales wants to remain firmly part of the UK family. It remains an open question as to whether that's true of Scotland. Now, I would enormously regret any decision of other people of Scotland to opt for independence in the referendum in 2014. A UK without the Scots would be bad for Wales. It would be thrown out of balance. England would constitute nearly 92% of the population of the new state, leaving Wales and Northern Ireland with the remaining 8%. If Scotland leaves the UK, who's to say England might not leave the UK? If one can leave, why not the other? Fanciful at the moment, true. But not fanciful if Scotland leaves. It would leave Wales and Northern Ireland as the successor state. And I often joke with Peter Robinson as to how we would then divvy up the UN Security Council seat. <laughs> but seriously, a residual UK would be even more unbalanced politically than it is at present. We share with the Scots an approach to economic and social policy questions, which is broadly social, democratic and communitarian in its ethos, 
whereas the inclination of the current UK government is for a far more market-based approach as far as public services in England are concerned. So losing the Scots bluntly will significantly weaken the Welsh voice in these debates. So for the future, and assuming the Scots stay, we need to envisage a kingdom which is politically diverse, looser, and combines several centres of democratic accountability. It will be politically diverse because whereas previously Labour governments operated at UK, Scotland and Wales level simultaneously, and so issues of contention could be smoothed over in a relatively informal way, the position is very different now. In consequence, we need to develop further the more formal mechanisms of intergovernmental machinery, such as the Joint Ministerial Committee, to manage these complex relationships. The kingdom would be looser because the process of devolution in each part of the UK will continue. In traditional constitutional theory, Parliament, having created the devolved institutions, could equally abolish them, without even referring to the people of Scotland and Wales as an exercise of parliamentary sovereignty. It was this idea that led Enoch Powell, of all people, to assert that power devolved is power retained. But in the real world, that's not practical politics. The concept of parliamentary sovereignty is not fit for the 21st century. Now, in practice, the present UK government has recognised for both Scotland and Wales that the consent of the respective legislatures must be obtained before Parliament can legislate on their fiscal powers. That's a welcome recognition of constitutional reality, whatever textbooks may say. What then is the future of devolution? Well, the Prime Minister has already said that in the event that the Scots vote no in the independence referendum, the powers of the Scottish Parliament can be re-examined and, by implication, expanded further. The Scottish Labour Party has set up its own commission to review the position, and in Wales we have, of course, the Silk Commission. Finally, I said the Kingdom would contain or combine several centres of democratic accountability. That's inherent in devolution itself, which enables distinct political mandates to be conferred on different tiers of government. And those mandates need to be reconciled. If needs be, through formal mechanisms, such as those I've mentioned now, devolution is here to stay, and our constitutional arrangements, indeed our daily intergovernmental practice, must take full account of that. But if Scotland goes in 2014, we can't pretend that the remaining union could simply carry on as before. In reality, much would have changed, and the long-term consequences might be profound what would be the implications, for example, of the UK's membership of international organisations? Would the UK continue as a state uh, in terms of it being called the United Kingdom? So rather than simply allowing events in Scotland to unfold and to react passively to whatever happens when it happens, I believe that political and civil society across the UK should be talking now about the sort of UK we want to see. Earlier this year, I proposed the establishment of a Convention on the Future of the United Kingdom. A snappier title, any suggestions would be welcome. But that needs to be done in order to examine the full context of relationships between the devolved administrations and the UK government. That calls received pleasing levels of support. The Parliamentary Select Committee is actively investigating the question. It was commented on favourably in a debate in the House of Lords last month, and press reports suggest 
that the Prime Minister is now open to the idea. He's told me he's uh, open to a comprehensive conversation, to use that word, about the kind of union we want to see. But why a convention rather than the traditional Whitehall device of a royal commission? Well, I think the constitutional reform agenda in the past has been a matter of a discussion amongst the political classes narrowly conceived with too little wider public engagement. A royal commission consisting of the great and the good and relying on traditional methods of taking evidence I don't think suit the spirit of the times, which at the moment, I have to say, is characterised by a distrust of established institutions and establishment figures. So we need to broaden out the debate. In other words, we need to do constitutional politics in a different way from ordinary politics. This isn't a revolutionary proposition. It's been done before. The success of Scottish devolution from its outset is surely linked to the work done over several years in the 1990s by the Scottish Constitutional Convention, which managed to build a consensus both on the case for devolution and how it should work. And both the New Zealand and Irish governments have recently put in train constitutional reform processes based either on the establishment of a constitutional convention, as in Ireland, or a wider public engagement than is normally the case, as in New Zealand. We also need to look at matters in the round. If the Scots decide to stay in the UK, that's likely to be on the basis of more powers of the Scottish Parliament. Is that simply a matter of interest for the Scottish Government and the UK Government, or should the other members of the UK club be involved as the terms of membership of one of them are effectively renegotiated. And I believe that all parts of the UK should be involved in that discussion in terms of what it means for other parts of the UK. So such a convention should examine the full range of constitutional possibilities. I find it inexplicable that the recent proposals for House of Lords reform were developed entirely without regard to the UK's territorial constitution. In other countries, the upper house of a legislature frequently contains representation not rigidly tied to electoral data, but with the House itself serving as a unifying institution within the state. Look at the states. House of Representatives based on population. The Senate, every state sends two representatives regardless of size. That's where the upper house should be going, that there should be representation across the UK that doesn't reflect population, whereas the House of Commons clearly would. And I believe that a territorial dimension to membership of the House of Lords could be a way of ensuring a strong voice for each of the four countries at UK level without diminishing England's voice. If we're to retain, for the foreseeable future, the system of appointment rather than election to membership of the House of Lords, then I believe that the devolved legislatures should be entitled to make an agreed number of nominations of potential members as a way of better securing that territorial membership of the Lords. In the same way, it's strange that at a time when the prospect of Scottish independence represents a challenge to the UK, potentially, a separate commission is set up to examine the so-called West Lothian question, to which, to my mind, there's no real answer. The question is about what future role MPs from constituencies outside England should play with respect to exclusively English legislation. But is there such a thing? The recent legislation on the reform of the health service appears in its face to have been purely about England, yet it will have significant implications for Wales, given the regular cross-border flows of patients registered with GPs uh, or indeed those taking advantage of hospital services on the other side. 
And as has been pointed out in evidence to the Commission, the resources available to the Welsh Government for expenditure on public services in Wales depend on the policies and resource allocation of UK Government with respect to England. Any legislation which affects that resource allocation or has the capacity to affect it is of legitimate interest to the constituents of MPs for Welsh seats. There's less money for England that will have an effect on Wales and less money for Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland for that matter. So surely the West Lothian question is something like the membership of the House of Lords that needs to be addressed in the wider constitutional context of the future of the UK. So a constitutional convention will be well placed to address these issues because Whitehall can't. But also, a convention would allow a more specifically English contribution to the debate. The discussions in recent years on constitutional matters within the UK have been primarily and perhaps disproportionately been about the governance of particularly Scotland, but also Wales and Northern Ireland. The English voice has yet to be heard properly. Now, it's not for me to say what arguments about the governance of England should be advanced, but I can certainly regret the lack of an English contribution so far. There has to be a way found to rectify that position. When should such a convention begin its work? In my view, as soon as possible. This goes back to my concern that the future constitutional position of Scotland within the United Kingdom is influencing the debate across the whole United Kingdom. I'm anxious that those who are committed to the UK should be proactive in developing a vision in which Scotland can see its rightful place without waiting for the outcome of a referendum. The Prime Minister doesn't share my view on that. He thinks that we need to focus on winning the case for the Union in Scotland first. I don't agree with that. Unless an attractive alternative for the UK's constitutional future, based on partnership between the different parts of the UK, are developed by the kind of convention I've mentioned, then that's going to affect the referendum in 2014. So in summary, I believe that we need a constitutional convention for the UK and we need it to begin its work as soon as possible. Finally. Somebody raised their head over there. This is finally. We must set all these internal constitutional developments in the wider context of a rapidly changing Europe. The crisis in the Eurozone will surely result in fundamental changes to the governance of the European Union. Indeed, under the fiscal compact signed in March this year, 25 EU member states agreed the Commission and the European Court of Justice may, in certain circumstances, have some jurisdiction over their national budgets. The President of the European Commission, Mr Barroso, in his State of the Union address to the European Parliament in September, stated that successful economic and monetary union must be accompanied by concrete steps towards a political union and ultimately a federation of nation states with shared sovereignty. That takes us a step further from where most people would be in the UK, certainly for the time being. But all these debates have meant that the role of regions in the EU and the debate about that role has largely gone off the boil, possibly because it seemed marginal to the economic crisis. But I want to put down a marker. Devolution at home needs expression at EU level where devolved vital interests are at stake. We have our own species of the West Lothian question. The minister responsible, the Secretary of State responsible for agriculture in England suddenly morphs into a UK Minister for Agriculture at the Council of Ministers in Brussels. In reality, when it comes to farming, DEFRA has no role at all outside England. And yet, it's the DEFRA Minister who represents the entire UK in the Council of Ministers 
potentially without the agreement of anyone else. Now, there are ways of trying to deal with that, but again, it's the converse of the West Lothian question, where you have a minister from one part of the UK that determines the UK's position, even though that minister doesn't represent large parts of the UK. Now, that can't be sustainable. We know that pressure for independence is apparent in different parts of Europe, in Scotland, in Flanders, in, in Catalonia, and elsewhere. And we must find ways of including devolved governments more effectively in EU decision-making unless we wish to encourage the breakup of existing states into smaller units. I know the UK government has set in train a review of the existing balance of competences between the EU and the UK, which is scheduled for completion in 2014. And the outcome of that review will no doubt inform the UK's negotiating position for a new relationship within the EU. But lying beyond that is the prospect of a UK referendum, presumably on whether to agree the terms of any new relationship which may have emerged, or even an in-out question. Now, that, those developments do produce real difficulties. Wales is generally supportive of the EU. Yes, there is a level of Euroscepticism in Wales, nothing like as marked as it is, in particularly the south of England. 150,000 jobs in Wales depend on our access to the single market, and more than 450 firms from other EU member states are located in Wales. They provide more than 50,000 jobs. So we would oppose repatriation of responsibility for investment in economic and social development. We have no guarantee we get the money from the Treasury. The structural funds have served Wales well, and we don't have that level of certainty if those powers end up coming back to London. But more fundamentally, imagine a referendum on the European Union which resulted in a vote to leave carried by the weight of English votes against the preferences of other parts of the UK to remain in membership. That would put us under enormous strain uh, and would only serve the interests of those who wanted the UK to cease to, to exist. Picture this. By 2014, there is a pledge to have a referendum on an in-out question before the Scottish referendum. In other words, the people of Scotland will be asked, do you want to be part of Britain or part of Europe? That is extremely unhelpful if you, if, you, if you want to see the Union preserved as far as Scotland is, is concerned. It's ironic that those pressing for an in-out referendum may actually be imperiling the very future of the UK that they love. But they don't think of that. They tend to think of it in terms of English terms. And that would be a matter of great concern, not just the people of Wales, but I believe the people of the entire UK. So, how should we conclude? And this is a conclusion. The various matters I refer to this evening, the final stages of the silk process in Wales, the Scottish referendum, the emergence of proposals, the new structures of governance in the EU, all seem likely to come to a head in or around 2014. The task is, to knit this together, to develop a more elastic United Kingdom while retaining a coherent whole, with all parts of the UK able to play their full part in the EU policy process. I'm not clear that anybody yet fully understands the scale and complexity of that challenge, but I'm clear that we in the UK haven't begun to address this challenge yet in any coherent way. But I'm sure that members of this school with the tradition that it has of engagement with the major issues of our time will want to make contributions to these fundamental questions, and I hope all of you do as well. And I look forward in time to hearing your views. I understand now that I have a session where I take questions. So having preached at you for a long time, you get the chance to have your own back. So I'd very much welcome now any questions that you might have. Thank you very much for listening.
as the First Minister said, we do have time, plenty of time for questions. We are recording this, so can I ask you to wait until the microphone comes, and then if you could speak clearly and perhaps identify yourselves. So who would like to um, begin? Um, thanks. Uh, I'm Hussein Arslan, uh, studied Master of Science at LSE. I'm a student at LSE. Um, yeah, um, what I noticed from your suggestions that you want more flexible wells uh, within the Union. As you know, uh, United Kingdom is a unique state. Um, if you compare uh, Scot Scottish Parliament with Wales Assembly, you see how unequal is it. Um, from point of your suggestions, do you think United Kingdom should be a federal state? For example, if what if Wales population declare its internal self-determination independence politically? Who would prevent it? I think it's, it's inevitable that the UK will end up as a federal state. It's a quasi-federal state already. It's not quite, but it's, it's on its way to it. Uh, if you're going to have certainty as to the different responsibilities and rights of different levels of government, the only coherent way of doing that is to have an element of federalism and certainly, uh, I would argue, a written constitution. That's a a difficult proposition and one that would take um, certainly some time. What it can't do is to soldier on uh, with this constitutional assertion that one elected institution can do whatever it wants uh, to the others. And I just don't think that's sustainable in the long term. Thank you. The lady with the glasses first. Then. The woman with the glasses on her head. Thank you. you. Yes, you were first. I'll bring the others in later. Uh, my name is Maya Trakovska, and I'm really glad you touched on the European aspect. I was waiting for that because that was my question in my head. My simple question is, we're at the end of 2012, and we're talking about the deadline in 2014. Uh, the best-case scenario, even if uh, Scotland is, doesn't vote for independence, it can still have a referendum in 10 years after that. So basically, my question is, how do you think you'll manage by 2014 to renegotiate how this union is going to function even if Scotland doesn't vote for independence? I don't think it will happen, unfortunately. Uh, the UK government has no appetite for a constitutional convention pre-1914, pre-1914, pre-2014, not quite that out of date, pre-2014, so I don't think it's going to happen. I think the, the referendum will go ahead in Scotland in 2014. Um, there are a number of factors that will come together in 2014 which make the result, I think, difficult to predict. I think it's more predictable now, but in two years' time, very difficult to know what will happen. I've got two questions over here, so I'll take those in succession. Gentleman first, and then... Um, hi, my name's Owen. I'm from Wales, but studying here. Um, I'm really interested in um, your, the tuition fees policy of the Welsh Government. Um, I see that as a really, really great way in which the Welsh Government in Cardiff is offsetting the unfairness um, that the Conservative-led government here is um, putting forward. And I think it's great that, you know, my brother can go to uni on three grand fees, the same as me. But realistically, how sustainable is that um, for the future? I wish, I wish it was sustainable. I wish we could have Welsh kids going to uni on fairer fees. But actually, how much can you deliver? The, the policy will, will remain in place for the term of this assembly. Beyond that, of course, there's, there's an election. It'll be for political parties to decide what they, what they want to do and who the government is beyond that. Don't read that as meaning that somewhere's going to be changed because it's, it's an open question. But from our point of view, we think it's a good policy. It will remain in place for the lifetime of this government. Uh, beyond that, of course, it depends on the election in 2016. So I think you'd be safe. 
Thank you. My name's John Ewan, and my question is on the party politics of the matter, because when devolution was created in 1999, we had a Labour government in London and a Labour-led coalition in Edinburgh and a Labour government in Wales. Now, of course, we've got a Conservative-led coalition in London, uh, SNP in Edinburgh, um, and, uh, of course, Labour in Wales. So my question is, um, how awkward does it become when, you know, from a party political point of view, you are presumably pulling in different directions. If Northern Ireland can do it, then we can do it. The reality is, I think, that uh, we're not going to agree on everything. That's, that's clearly the case. But that doesn't mean that there can't be proper business-like intergovernmental relations, if I can put it that way. And they do exist. I mean, we... we I'm the, the leader of Welsh Labour. I'm the First Minister of Wales. I'm not the leader of the opposition at the UK level. That's, that's, that's Ed's job. And so from my point of view, it's, it's not my job to pick holes uh, or to criticise the UK government. I will from time to time when I don't agree with them, and they'll do the same to me. That's, that's, that's democracy. But my job is to secure the best deal for Wales, uh, and that's the way I see it. And, and it, you know, We've been in this position now for a number of years, actually, if you consider what happened in 2007 in the, uh, in the Scottish elections when the SNP became the government. Uh, and it's, those relationships have worked, but they could work a lot better if we had more formal mechanisms than we do now. Okay. Question at the front here, Robert Hazel. Robert Hazel from the Constitution Unit, UCL. Um, you said that the, you felt sadly the UK government is not going to support a constitutional convention on the future of the Union. But is it any more likely that the Scottish Government or the Northern Ireland Government would support such a convention? And that leads into a wider question. Uh, in the councils of the Joint Ministerial Committee, how often do the three devolved governments find that they have a common interest against the UK Government? And how often, for entirely understandable reasons, because your interests frequently will differ, as, for example, you illustrated they do over the Barnett formula, do you find yourselves inevitably pulling in different directions? Well, first of all, the, there is much common ground between the devolved institutions. But as you rightly point out, uh, Robert, when it comes to issues like Barnett, then that, that common ground isn't there. Our position is diametrically opposed to Scotland's position on, on, on Barnett. We will make common ground from time to time. Uh, we will look to see how our voices can be maximised, because even, even with three of us acting together, we're still small, uh, compared to, as it were, the English voice. Uh, so we will, we will look to work together on, on issues where we, where we can. In terms of the JMC, the JMC is, 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 effective, is effective, but it all boils down to this problem, that when it comes to arbitrating any dispute... UK government's judge and jury. When it comes to a financial dispute, the Treasury's judge and jury. There is no independent um, arbitration, independent adjudication or arbitration or mediation. Even it's, it's at the end of the day, the UK government has the, has the whip hand. And from our point of view, that is clearly uh, difficult. Uh, thus far, ways have been found in the main to resolve disputes. Not always but a more formal mechanism would certainly help in terms of at least giving the impression um, that there is a level of fairness between the different administrations that doesn't exist at the moment. 
Thank you. Tony Travers from the LSE. I want to ask a question about the government of Wales itself, really. I mean, um, it is, I mean the UK is a, a, a country uh, with a capital city in the southeast that's very big and dominant, but so is Wales in many ways. And in the original vote uh, about creating the Welsh Assembly, North Wales was less enthusiastic as it often had been for the idea. So I wonder, so my question is, you know, as the first minister of a political system based in a big city in the southeast of the country, how have you worked and do you have to work to sort of be the government of all of Wales? And particularly given that, um, for example, I mean, you've had to intervene in the local government of Anglesey, taking direct, a direct step to intervene in a way that uh, would be seen as interventionist even by English local government standards. So how, how do you kind of, you know, given that Wales, North and South are, certainly where I came from, seen as different countries, um, or parts of very different in many ways, how have you worked to uh, bring them together into a single political entity? I mean, more than linguistically and historically, obviously. Well, first of all, of course, making it easier to travel north-south. You know yourself that it's the roads historically in Wales lead east-west. They were the historic trading routes out of Wales. It's a lot easier to go north-south to train every two hours uh, between Cardiff and Llandeilo Junction, for example. Uh, the air service that's in place twice a day, that's helped as well. But also, more practical steps, um, we've uh, relocated a substantial number of government officials to Aberystwyth and Llandeilo Junction. Uh, and it means now that uh, a, a good number, probably uh, certainly not far off in the third and 40% of civil servants are now based outside Cardiff. And that does give people a sense of, of, of belonging in terms of the organisation that they, they work for and, and what they see. What is the evidence of that? Look at the result last, uh, last year in the referendum. Gwyneth, top of the tree in terms of uh, yes vote, second, Neath Talbot, then Commander. Ronda Cunnantaf flincher at 62% that had changed remarkably from, uh, from, 2000 and, uh, from 1997. Uh, and indeed, if you, look at the, if you look at the map of Wales, after the referendum result in 1997, it bears a remarkable resemblance to a map I saw in school of Wales in the 12th century in the Norman lands and the Welsh lands. It's remarkably similar. Norman lowlands and the Welsh uplands. If you look at the map of Wales now after the referendum last year, you'll see a, a remarkable degree of consistency across Wales. Yes, you have membership at the lower end in terms of a yes vote and going at the, at the top end, but there are, there are a much larger number of areas of Wales uh, that are across Wales that are supportive, supportive of more powers for the Assembly and therefore, by, by reason, supportive of devolution. So, um, speaking of North Wales, uh, whenever I'm in Hollyhead waiting for a ferry, it always strikes me how much closer Dublin is to, um, to North Wales and Cardiff, or uh, by a long way, London. I'm just wondering if you could say anything about the relationship between Wales and, and Ireland and what impact that could have for the, for the Union. Uh, it's, it's of great importance to me because I married an Irishman. So I, I personally demonstrated a commitment there uh, that, uh, that, that's there for all to see. Ireland uh, is a major trading partner for Wales. Obviously, our links into Ireland via Pembroke and Fishguard, into Rosslea and via Holyhead, into Dunleary and Dublin are exceptionally important and important European routes as well. Uh, we do have 
very close contact with the um, Irish government. I met the Taoiseach many, many times. And uh, the Irish ambassador was in Cardiff last week. So it is a link that we value both culturally and indeed in terms of trade, given the amount and, and also the, the Irish companies who invest in Wales as well. Of, on the union? I don't think it has an impact on the UK, the relationship that we have with Ireland. Uh, we, we, it, it's not unusual for us to have direct relationships with any number of governments uh, across, across the world. So, for example, we have a direct link with, with Catalonia uh, and the Basques. Uh, we have direct links with um, other governments in, in, in other parts of the world, um, some of the lender in Germany, for example, and a direct link with, with the, the Republic's government. So that would be something quite usual. Thank you. I've got two questions sort of in the middle. Gentlemen. Hi, uh, Sean. I'm Irish. Um, I'm a little bit confused. If, let's say if Scotland doesn't get independence, they will probably push for more powers, so Wales can kind of follow suit and push for more powers. That, I think that's the angle that you might be coming from. But um, let's say down the road Wales do push for independence. Are they strong enough economically to, to go it alone? No, I mean, we, we raise about 19 billion in taxes. Uh, we probably would have to spend somewhere between 25 and 30. So that gives you some idea of what the gap is. Now, you could make some of that up with water, charges, and energy, because we export an awful lot of it. But you know, in reality, it's not oil. So there would undoubtedly be a gap. So from a financial point of view, the argument for Welsh independence is, to my mind, very, very weak. And the argument I'd make is, why do we need it? In reality, we have a strong identity. We've got our own language that nearly a quarter of our people speak fluently. Uh, we have our own sporting teams, which are actually important to identity, critically important to identity. Uh, we have a devolved legislature. What does independence add in terms of, of, of identity in, in that way? It certainly isn't financially advantageous. So to me, that there, there, there are no advantages to independence uh, in terms of what it would do for Wales. Gentleman in the middle there. Hi, my name's Tom Dorr. Um, the um, quote you gave from Enoch Paul, I think, was power devolved is power reserved. Do you mean that it can be taken back? And that doesn't seem to me like power as I understand it, if it can be taken back. So don't you find that the constraints are significant, therefore, on Wales developing its own voice? I mean, to me, my understanding of what's driven independence movements in other places is that those places, like Scotland, is significantly more socialist in its politics than the southeast of England. It's when people want to say something that isn't agreeable to the power centre that they feel that they must strike out on their own. And doesn't it concern you that the power could be taken back if you become more disagreeable? Even more disagreeable. <laughs> That's precisely why we need the reserve powers model and precisely why we need a, a constitutional convention. You're quite right. At the, at the moment, the UK Parliament could abolish all the devolved legislatures without even bothering. In fact, the UK government tried to do this with changing the 
method of election to the Assembly without a referendum at all. I think that's going to quietly go away, but they're trying to do it, and you're quite right. It's wrong that Parliament is able to do whatever it wants with regard to the devolved administrations. Parliamentary sovereignty, unfit for the 21st century. That's why we need a constitutional convention to entrench uh, devolved powers and entrench the devolved legislatures within the constitution so they can't be removed like that. And that's the way forward. You're right that at the moment it is a source of frustration. It's not going to happen, but it is a source of frustration, at least not certainly in the next few years or two, or year, year, next year or two, I hope. It is a source of frustration that one elected body can abolish everything else without bothering to consult the very people who established those elected bodies in the first place. Quote de Valera, what the Welsh people established, only the Welsh people can disestablish. He didn't say that about the Welsh, of course he said that about the Irish people. And that's the way it should be, in terms of the Constitution. George Jones, LSE. Why, as a champion of devolution, do you allow the UK government to determine what Wales needs to spend? I think in your image of the block grant, and we both agree on the need for equalisation, uh, why do you still stress needs coming into that grant when need is a highly political and subjective concept? The best people to know what Wales needs to spend are surely Welsh politicians in the Assembly who are answerable to their own voters. Surely what Grant should be focusing on, the block grant, is something that can be objectively measured, namely resources. You can calculate that in terms of taxable capacity, what you're able to raise from different areas in your country. So focus on putting in terms of resources you all on the same level playing field, and you focus on the needs element in Wales. Surely devolution of taxation should allow you to determine the needs. Why give up the needs to the UK government? Where's what you defined by needs? I think the way you define needs is that the UK government should determine how those needs are met. Whereas my argument is uh, that uh, it is for the UK, it's for the state as a whole to determine the needs of different parts of the state, but not to spend the resources allocated once those needs have been assessed. In other words, as far as Wales is concerned, we have a formula at the moment, the Barnett formula, that allocates money to Wales based on a formula that's 30 years out of date. That formula, at the very least, should be updated that would then release more resources to Wales and some other parts of the UK. But how those resources are spent are a matter for the democratically elected politicians in Wales. So, really, I mean, if, if I think what you were suggesting was that somehow I would concede that the UK government should be able to control our budget in terms of how we spend it, well, no, it's quite simply the answer to that. Okay, we're coming to. But the any, any political entity, any fiscal and monetary union, uh, will will move resources around according to where those those. The, the areas of greatest need are. One of the issues of the Eurozone, of course, is that it's a monetary union, but not a fiscal union. 
In other words, there's one currency, but money isn't moved around according to need. It, it's, it doesn't work that way. And that's why, of course, we see the, the difficulties that have arisen with regard to, to Greece and Spain and other countries. Okay, we take one last question because we are coming to the end of our time. So, gentlemen over there, by the pillar. Uh, my name is Owen Williams. Uh, I'm an architect. And uh, I'm particularly interested in the um, elastic union you described earlier. Now, um, there's no need for me to tell you that there's not a rugby team above the M4 in Wales, uh, a regional rugby team. And actually, with regards to your comments about identity, I actually think that's quite poignant. And without making this question about rugby, because it's absolutely not, I think there's a lack of sort of um, a civic types in Wales, civic typology to run Wales. And particularly on a political and governmental level, I feel as if a lot of Wales is unengaged with their... Um, sort of civic identity um, in a sort of um, quite poignant way. And I was wondering what sort of role maybe the localism bill would play in your idea of what the elastic union is. Well, the first thing to remember is that we have a lot of local authorities for our site, 22 of them, and it's difficult to... to um, certainly... A, 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 for us to be in a position where we have 22 because they find it difficult to deliver all the services. Actually piling more pressure onto local authorities is, I think, is the wrong approach in Wales. Uh, we certainly wouldn't have started with 22. We have them now, and then, you know, how that's dealt with in the future is, 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 one, is one thing we're going to have to look at. If you look at some of our local authorities, Merthyr has 54,000 people, and it's expected to deliver education, social services, economic development, housing, with a council tax base... Uh, that's quite low. Uh, in other words, one of, the, one of the most deprived authorities is being asked to finance uh, the highest level of services. And that can't work. That's going to work in the future. Uh, we've had Anglesey who have, been, uh, have had to be taken over effectively uh, and, and run by commissioners. There have been interventions in Pembrokeshire, in Blanegwent, and it's not sustainable in the future for that, that to happen. So what we need is an effective uh, level of local government, and I believe we've got that in, in, in many parts of Wales, uh, and to strengthen it in the future. Uh, how that's done, of course, uh, is going to be a matter for debate over the next few years. Thank you very much. Friends, when we um, began this series some time ago, the argument was being driven largely by those who were challenging the union. Tonight... With our speaker, we've had a, an interesting and an eloquent defence of the union alongside advocacy of the case for Wales in the devolution settlement and in the wider context of British and European politics. Things we can take away from your lecture tonight, First Minister, the idea of the Convention and Wales' contribution, Wales' particular contribution to renewing the union, um, something that will no doubt be... Uh, uh, will certainly no doubt encourage further discussion and debate, especially the introduction, something wasn't, that wasn't actually picked up, I think, of, the ter of a territorial dimension to future constitutional reform. We've yet to find the, uh, the English voice, so any suggestions you could make would be very welcome. But on that, um, we are nevertheless very grateful for you for taking the time to be here with us tonight. So... First, can I just thank the audience for your questions and participation? And then finally, can I ask you to join with me in thanking our speaker, the First Minister, Carwin Jones.
And last, before you leave, we will have further British government at LSE events, and can I refer you to the website for information upon, about those. Thank you all very much. <laughs>